The race to find gold in the hills heats up, but at what cost? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Monday, September 18th. This is In the Moment. This week, we dig into stories about the Black Hills National Forest. On Wednesday, we'll bring you an SDPB special called Black Hills in the Balance. Today, SDPB's Lee Strubinger reports on gold prospecting and lithium exploration as the push for domestically mined critical minerals zeroes in on the Black Hills. Also this week, the South Dakota Festival of Books in the moment broadcast live from Rapid City and Deadwood later this week. We'll see you there. So today we'll preview some festival highlights by listening to authors scheduled to present. We'll hear from Brian Turner, Patrick Hicks, and W. Carter Johnson. Let's get things started. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. The push for domestically mined critical minerals is zeroing in on the Black Hills. While the Black Hills have historically been known to produce minerals other than gold and silver, companies are returning to map what else may exist. SDPB's Lee Strubinger reports. Alex Steiner kneels above a roughly six-foot-wide crater in the ground on a parcel of land west of Mount Rushmore National Memorial. He points to white rock strewn around the hole. Those are probably little pieces of quartz. So all through the early 1900s, late 1800s, people were out here. Anytime they'd see that, they'd st put a stick of dynamite in it and blow it up and send it to one of the, uh, one of the towns because every town had an assayer, and they would tell them if it's gold in it or not. So we find these things everywhere. The crater is deep enough that it shows up on a detailed LIDAR map he and another geologist are color coding. They're logging what type of rock exists where within the boundaries of the mineral claim. Steiner is a senior geologist with Big Rock Exploration, which is contracting with Midwest Lithium to map the area. To the south is the outline of Black Elk Peak. Steiner says that formation is important. Which is a magma that crystallized underground, probably somewhere around 14 kilometers, give or take. And then it shot off little dikes that look like this. He's talking about the iconic bubbly granite faces and formations the Black Hills are known for from a tourism perspective. Steiner says they're known for something else as well. Some of those dikes have lithium in them, which is what we're out here looking for. Some of them don't. We don't know which ones are which. So we come out here and we map these and we sample them to get an idea of kind of what we're looking for and where it is. Steiner pulls out a pink color pencil to indicate pegmatites in this particular ridge. Pegmatites exist all around the area of Mount Rushmore and the Black Elk Wilderness. Pegmatites contain spodumene crystals, which hosts the element lithium. Lithium is seen as a key mineral in the country's transition from fossil fuels. The Biden administration has indicated it wants those minerals mined domestically. The Inflation Reduction Act, a massive federal package passed by Democrats last year, offers incentives for just that. The first lithium mine in North America is located to the east of here, just outside of Keystone, the Etta Mine. A pool of water sits at the base of a deep hole in the ground. A blue heron flies up from the lagoon and out of the mine. Look at that. Look at the blue heron. Looking at that fish that just jumped. Mike Schlumberger is a general manager with Midwest Lithium. He says 50% of the world's lithium is contained in spodumene crystals. Schlumberger points out the crystals in the exposed rock face wall of the abandoned mine. Horizontal 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then there's some that go like this, just on the other side of that at it. Mm -hmm. And then there's some that go straight down. That's spodumene. Spodumene crystals look like a translucent rectangle. Midwest Lithium recently announced its intention to drill exploration holes near Keystone and Hill City. Schlumberger likes what he sees. And, you know, the good news about it is we're blessed with this in South Dakota, and there aren't many places in the world that have, that have these materials, and so South Dakota can, has the potential to become a powerhouse for developing these, these lithium minerals that are, that are so important to modern-day life. But it's not just Midwest Lithium that's mapping what exists in the hills. The mountain range is seeing a significant increase in new mining claims. The latest numbers from the Bureau of Land Management show the number increased from 230 in 2019 to 4,248 in 2022. That's an 18-fold increase. Quinn Neff is with South Dakota Mineral Industries. He says that's something that hasn't happened here outside of gold exploration. The pegmatites in the Black Hills are some of the most complex geology in the Black Hills even. And uh, so yeah, no one's really actively modern day explored the pegmatites here. A lot of it was just historic. Uh, what we see, we mine uh, versus today, you know, we're actually taking a research approach to exploring the pegmatites. Neff and Schlumberger point to the role the United States can play in solving supply chain and human rights issues by producing minerals domestically. Experts like Angela Bricky, an associate professor at South Dakota Mines, says our use of minerals changes with our technology. We've seen that with quite a few metals and with platinum in the early 2000s, with lithium now and with nickel or cobalt, we're seeing a reduction in some commodities where we're reducing how much we're producing and we're increasing others. But as demand changes, one state lawmaker says the state's current taxing structure remains in the 1800s. The state only taxes gold, silver, and energy-producing minerals like coal, oil and gas, and uranium. The bulk of spodumene crystals are located within pegmatites, and state law only requires a $100 annual permit to sequester that material, similar to sand and gravel. Representative Kirk Chafee hopes to change that designation. Chafee is a retired county assessor who brought a bill to tax the mineral lithium last session. The bill failed, but the Republican from Whitewood has plans to bring a new bill next session. With my background, in, in especially in property tax, I'm looking for those areas where it's kind of abused or it's unfair. Lithium kind of comes to mind. As a Republican, Chafee says he opposes new taxes. However, his background as a director of equalization makes him look for areas to make the state's tax code fairer. Again, I'm not trying to propose a new tax, but I want to make the tax, if we're going to tax minerals, let's be fair across the board. Let's keep it, let's keep it low, let's keep it equitable, and let's keep it uh, something that's easily uh, to administer. As Midwest Lithium begins its exploration for lithium in the hills, Chafee will have to convince a Republican-controlled legislature and governor the tax proposal is worthwhile. I'm SDP Beasley Strubinger in Keystone. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. 
A South Dakota mineral exploration company thinks there are significant gold deposits near the Homestake Mine in the northern Black Hills. Dakota Gold formed and began exploratory drilling in early 2022. The company is already listed on the New York Stock Exchange. SDPB's Lee Strubinger sat down with Dakota Gold's chief operating officer, Jerry Aberley, to talk about their search for gold. The Homestake Mine, that deposit, is a, there's nothing like it in the world. It's still the biggest iron formation gold deposit in the in the world and I don't know that we're going to find another 40 million ounce ore body anywhere in the world but we might find a 2 million and we might find a 5 million and we might find a 7 million next to that it's a great place to explore for gold if some of those deposits do exist up here why didn't Homestake gather those at the time yeah it's an interesting question so one of the things that made Homestake so successful is Hearst consolidated first the deposit and then the district. And it was that consolidation of the district, he had all the mineral property covered, he, that eliminated competition for water and manpower and, and timber and people. And so he had, a, had consolidated the district but the Homestake gold mine was so successful, and as they kept going down deeper to the south, then they discovered that there were successive ledges to the west. And so all of Homestake's exploration for 130 years was to just keep going deeper and keep looking to the west, and it just kept delivering forever. It just kept delivering. It wasn't until the 1980s and 1990s that anybody explored in the hills, really, and Homestake started exploring, and the low gold price really stopped anything. They're, they made discoveries. It's just the gold price stopped anybody from developing it, Homestake from developing it. And because Homestake had all the mineral ground covered, nobody else ever explored here. It's why it's still here today. And, you know, uh, Barrick became involved. Barrick being the company that bought Homestake once they closed. Homestake Mining Company was still viable. It was uh, acquired by Barrick and Newmont had an interest in it. It was just a time of consolidation in the business. And it just was not in Barrick's profile to produce in South Dakota. They are Nevada focus and South American focus, African focus, and they just weren't interested in operating a mine here. And their business plan is just different than exploring for um, you know, if this got more advanced, Barrick could certainly be interested to get involved. What has happened um, with the price of gold since then to now? Well, we were, you know, I was there. We were trying to operate it in a $300 an ounce gold uh, environment. And just when we'd get there, then gold went down to 280 <laughs> And you just, we were... Homestake Mining Company, it's what I did at Homestake the last three years, is we were working on building a new plant here to reduce our overhead costs to try and operate even lower than $300 an ounce. And we, the company decided to do that, and the gold price just wouldn't cooperate, and so we kicked the ball down the road a ways and kicked the ball down, and then Homestake was ultimately acquired by Barrick. Mm-hmm. So... Has the price of gold recovered, and is that like why some of the exploration is happening right now? Yeah, uh, gold price today is $1,900 an ounce, and it's completely different. 
And this isn't a brand new development. This is the history of gold mining. Um, gold mines produced for a while and, and then they may become uneconomic or expiration prospects are uneconomic and then the, the gold price goes up. And usually those things come back to attention and get more expiration. And it's hard to find a place in the world right now that hasn't already had some expiration done on it before. But it's this, it, gold is a supply and demand business in the end. And when the supply gets low enough, the price goes up and, and then there's more product comes on and the demand goes down and that's the way it works. What price does it need to reach in order to open a mine? It's there. Yeah, this is a great gold environment. You're listening to In The Moment. I'm speaking with Jerry Aberly, who is the COO and director of Dakota Gold Corp based in Leed. You talked about uh, getting listed on the New York Stock Exchange and being added to two indexes, and you described that as a big deal. Why is that a big deal, and what does that mean for this company? Part of that is personal for me. When I was uh, fretting about how to get this off the ground for a long time, I I said to myself, how will I measure success? And that was one of them, is getting listed on the New York Stock Exchange. But it is a big deal because this is just an amazing asset, the exploration opportunity, the mineral opportunity. And you have to have it in a company that can, can do the work, that can fund the work that needs to be done, and then bring minds about that are done in a way that's sensitive to the community, the environment. And we're working to, uh, we're working on final reclamation plans before we even have an ore body. And that's the difference between this long-term view on the district and way a lot of junior exploration companies have to, that business works. You're working with 13 different properties right now. And the two that you're most excited about are Richmond Hill and, and Maitland. In a presentation you gave earlier, you talked about Richmond Hill turning into a resource for the first quarter of next year. What does that look like? So you, there are specific guidelines put together by the SCC or in Canada, it's called 43101. And they are guidelines for mineral companies that pr- provide a... Uh, recipe for what constitutes a resource so that everybody is comparing apples and apples and then oranges and oranges. So you have to do enough drilling, you have to do due diligence on on the en- environment, you have to do due gel- diligence on the geology. So it takes a, um, a high level of work and uh, certainly enough drilling to constitute a viable resource with enough economic work to also justify that, that if, if this is developed, these are going to be profitable ounces. And we expect to have a maiden resource in the first quarter of next year. Yeah. This region is, is no stranger to uh, mining, even though it's been a couple decades since uh, a new one has, has opened up anyways. Um, you talked a little bit about an economic study uh, during your presentation. What do, what do some of those numbers suggest about economic impact to the area? The company, Dakota Gold, has prepared a, 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 a model for a moderately sized Precambrian gold deposit underground. 
and we did a cash flow analysis of that and we modeled the capital that goes into it and the production that comes out of it and about a 2.4 million ounce deposit mined over 17 years. And it has a huge positive economic impact um, on the region really, but it's about $1.7 billion overall and it's $350 million worth of state taxes direct, paid directly to the state. And then it's 330 jobs, more or less direct mining jobs and there's probably 800 jobs total that are indirect jobs that come from people supplying materials and that sort of thing. It, it's a huge driver and we did that, that we took our model, our financial model, and then we worked with the University of South Dakota to prepare an economic impact study. And it's just, it's been done so that we know what, we're, what, what the positive impacts are. And we use that sort of thing to be able to gauge where we need to be um, w with our planning and what period of time it has to operate over and um, we mean for this whole thing to work with the industries and the businesses that are already here. Certainly tourism is an industry that has to be protected and gaming. We've, we've, so we're, this get, we are planning for seven years from now and it's bigger than where's the ore come from. It's how you get along with your neighbors and your community and where do people live. So that's that's what we're doing. One of the properties also is near the old Homestake mine. Is there any kind of intersection with surf there uh, and some of the research that will be done there? Are there, you know, all this public money has been put into a lot of this research. What can we kind of, I guess, expect if you're in and around uh, the Homestake and, and underground research facility? So we think that the work that's being done at SURF is absolutely essential for South Dakota and the community. We think that's a great investment and that whatever we do can be done in, in, in and around that without interfering with it. And we're absolutely committed not to disturb what is being done and what's been invested by the state of South Dakota and the good people up there. At the same time, there are all kinds of opportunities where we can work together and we are actually having discussions on our plans for Grizzly Gulch and how does that impact the, the surf infrastructure and what could be done to benefit in what we're doing, what could be done to benefit what they're trying to do for water treatment. Could we utilize their water? And those are just discussions right now, but we're absolutely committed to working with surf without interfering with the science that's going on up there. Um, Jerry Aberly, thank you so much for your time. Was there anything I didn't ask about that I should have? Most people don't have a clue what we're doing and what, what we've invested in doing it and how we're trying to go about it. One of the things I'm really proud of is we're working out in Maitland in real close proximity to people that don't have anything to gain and they're allowing us this opportunity because they think this is good for the area and the community. And so we're doing our work out there in a way, we put an effort into quieting our drills down and we're drilling in close proximity to homes without bothering anybody. And it's just really been a, a um, it's a lot of work, but it's been, it's really, uh, it's what we're about. And even our employees are proud of that effort.
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The South Dakota Festival of Books kicks off this weekend. The Young Reader Festival begins Thursday in Rapid City and In the Moment broadcast live from SDPB studios there with children's authors. Then we're live from the Lodge in Deadwood for Friday's show. I'll also be on stage with Kate DiCamillo on Saturday talking about her forthcoming book and the power of fairy tales. We'll have screenings of The American Buffalo, that's a Ken Burns production, and Tatanka from SDPB. And we'll gather the poets for SDPB's documentary on Badger Clark, the state's first poet lariette. But first, we wanted to highlight some authors that you can meet in Deadwood by bringing back a few of their interviews today. We'll get to W. Carter Johnson in a moment, but let's start now with Brian Turner and Patrick Hicks. Brian Turner has authored five collections of poetry and the memoir, My Life as a Foreign Country. He's doing a presentation in Deadwood and then also a veterans writing workshop. Hicks brought Brian Turner to Augustana College. You'll hear both writers in this interview here in a moment. But Hicks, by the way, I wanted you to know, has a new novel, and it is called In the Shadow of Dora. He is also scheduled to talk about that book at the South Dakota Festival of Books. Here's my conversation with Brian Turner and Patrick Hicks. Uh, you have a special relationship with South Dakota, largely mm-hmm. because of the relationship that is built with Patrick, mm-hmm. with the Festival of Books. Tell me a little bit about what South Dakota and uh, really means to you when you come back as often as you do. Well, first was a, is a visual one, because I, I did a road trip around the country and drove um, from Florida to Lake Tahoe, and my wife and I came through. And uh, it was just uh, the beauty of the landscape was really what caught me first. And then uh, Dr. Hicks, you know, Patrick, as I know him, um, <laughs> is, uh, is, a, is a dear friend. And, w- and he's, uh, after the passing of my wife, um, uh, she died of cancer in 2016. Um, I don't, I'm sure he knows this, but I don't think we've overtly talked about it, but he's my first reader. So I send everything to him. And I don't know how he does it because he's a very busy man. And I, I send him like these book after book, and I've written a couple of novels that no one will probably ever read, and he's gone through line by line and just been very, very kind as a, as a fellow a colleague in the art. Yeah, a privilege, yeah. Patrick. Oh, for sure, yes. Um, uh, to be a, a first reader, um, it, it is a privilege, you know. Um, and I know as a writer that's really important is you write something and then you want to make sure that um, it's as good as you, you hope it will be. Um, and yeah, we haven't overtly talked about this, but I, I know that when, um, uh, Brian's wife, um, passed away, I mean, he, he, he lost that ability. So, yeah. um, it's, it's been a real, a real joy to, to read Brian's work. And he's got three new collections of poetry coming out later this year, which are just phenomenal. So I want to start with you, Patrick, oddly enough, because there is, um, a long history of people writing about war. Yeah from the personal experience of war, like Brian does, from the imaginary space, like you do, um, based on a ton of research, of course. What is the value of, and and how has it sort of evolved over the years? Because specifically, I want to get to the honesty that is in my life as a foreign country that maybe you wouldn't have seen in years past, at least in my reading experience, but maybe you have a different outlook on that. Well, one of the things that I really appreciate about um, Brian's memoir, My Life as a Foreign Country, is that it's far more than just uh, this happened to me in Iraq, I did this in Iraq. It's about uh, the totality of a family that has 
decades of service in the U.S. military. And Brian sees echoes with, with his father and his grandfather, great-grandfather. Um, and I really, really appreciate in this memoir how he asks questions about, you know, what does it mean to be a man in America and the compulsion to, to serve? So um, I guess nominally we could say that my life as a foreign country is about his experience in Iraq. It's, it's a lot more than that. There's a fr it's, it's fragmented, um, and it's about family history and U.S. history. Which gets to something that you've been asked about a lot, not only by journalists, but by readers, which is why did you join in the first place? And you say in the book, you know, you don't really have the answer. You have some answers. Um, you have answers that you'll share, answers that you won't share. You've had more answers since you've written this and toured the book. Are you still searching? Well, that's actually the question that led me into the book. That was the central question initially. But then I did find, as Patrick talked about, this generational sort of inheritance of um, military life and uh, experience. And I don't think I fully understand, but I, I do. I think part of me, if you take me back to when I was seven years old and I, I would walk out in the it was you know, the veterans in my family would sometimes talk with each other. And I, whenever I was around, I got sort of the landscape of war, the, the, the sort of National Geographic version of, of that in the sense of, there, there's, oh, they would talk to me about the islands that they had seen or the, how big the ocean was. or that They didn't talk about what kept them up at 2 a.m. Those kind of memories were the things that they shared with each other. And then when I came back from a war, and I don't mean this in any way to, to um, say something bad about my family, that they didn't try to help me as much as they could, but I think it's a very common thing when I came back from a war, then they started talking to me about their experiences. When and, you came back from right. the war, then they told Once, you things that... Yeah, it's a very common yeah. thing. It's sort of, sort of like you have to... In America, it seems like our warrior class sort of leaves America once every generation and goes through some type of test of fire and then comes back changed, clothed in silence. And and, and it's a it, it doesn't fully help the full... I don't, I'm not sure if it does them good as a, as a community, uh, or myself even, right. <laughs> but, you know, the veterans, but also the larger community of America, if we could somehow find a way to have a larger conversation about this, it would make us all healthier. Yeah, I've done a yeah. lot of work on women in the military yeah. through my military service, and one of the things someone told me recently was she had never met a woman Marine who had joined to figure out if she was a man or not. Um, which is obviously a joke that we, yeah, <laughs> that we sort of share amongst <laughs> each other. But um, the number of times that you were confronted with men who were really trying mm. to figure out what masculinity was, mm. which that wasn't necessarily our experience in right, joining, right. just because of how we were culturally brought up. Mm. Were you aware of a sense of what it meant to be mm. a man before you were aware of what it meant to be a warrior or a man at war? The, um, that's interesting. Um, I think you know I'd mostly been interested in the arts prior to that, but in the background or deep down in a subconscious level, because uh, I joined when I was about thirty. So at a subconscious level, I think I realized like I remember thinking when I joined, like or when I was about to join, oh, I'm going to miss it. And I would like to go back and ask that younger version of me, what do you think you're going to miss yeah. exactly? And I think it's that whatever that experience is that I thought was shared by those people I revere in my family. Uh, the, the men and women who've been in uniform. <clears throat> Were you already writing about their time before you went? Because I'm really curious mm. about the idea of like already having a master's mm -hmm. 
in English and writing before you go over. <laughs> That's super rare. I'm sure that you didn't meet a lot of people who have that experience. No, you At know, least I, I was did. in I was seven years, one month, and twenty nine days in the military, and for seven years of that time, people would come up to me because I was in the enlisted ranks and I had mm-hmm. more degrees than some of the officers over me, right? right. And um, people would come up and this is always the conversation. They'd come up and say, "Hey, Sergeant T, I heard you have a master's degree." And I'd say yes, and they'd say, "Oh." What are you doing here? And it was when we came back from Iraq, um, we were we had a lot of replacements come in, and officers among them, and they've just finished West Point, they've just finished college. So that then one of those officers asked me if I, they said the, the same question, and I said yes, and they said, oh, what'd you study? And I was like, oh, I thought I was going to make it the whole time without someone asking what the subject was, because <laughs> it just politics. Seemed, uh, <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't. But doesn't write that about, reveal something yeah. too? Mm. The why are you here mm. implies that the people who are here have to be. Yes. Yeah. That the, that I came from privilege in that yeah. sense. That I mm-hmm. had choice. That's the unwritten. Yeah. Oh, it's an accusation, but it's an unwritten, mm-hmm. incredulous. Yeah. Like, why are you here? I'm yeah. here because I don't have any money because I'm from this part yeah. of the world, rural South Dakota. I'm here because I need money for college. I wouldn't be here if I. Mm-hmm. had an access to a path. Yeah, you go to an, a military base anywhere in America, and, and you'll see, uh, you'll go through the suburbs there and the housing part portions of the base. It's yeah. all brand new Ford pickup trucks, Mustangs, motorcycles. You know, like in my family, no one had ever had a brand new car with 38 miles on the odometer. Yeah. So I still came from, my dad was a welder, my mom was a bartender. Um, I did, uh, I had 50 bucks. I was a machinist when I was finishing, my, my, uh, I, an undergraduate at Fresno State. And I had one chance to apply at one master's program, and I didn't get in. I was number 17 on the waiting list. And above my lathe, I had a chalkboard that had one to seven. They only took six people. And I kept calling the front desk until it got down to six, and then I got that last slot. I would probably be talking to you right now. I'd, yeah. I'd be in Fresno probably this day working still. You yeah. talk in this book. I want to go mm-hmm. um, back to a piece that I marked earlier this morning, if I can find it right away. But you're talking about infantry, too, because it's not just that you join the Army. You mm. have a master's degree, and you join the Army, and you point to mm. the, the word infantry on a piece of paper, and it says, I signed the paper and joined the infantry for reasons I won't tell you and for reasons I will. Mm. I signed the paper and joined the infantry because at some point in the hero's life, the hero is supposed to say, I swear. I joined because I hadn't signed up for the first Gulf War, I signed the paper and joined the infantry because I drunk wild turkey and puked my guts out on the streets of South Korea for a year after grad school. I joined because I wanted to go to jungle warfare school down in Panama, not because I wanted to fight in the jungle, but to sleep in a hammock under a canopy of plants and trees I couldn't name. The night's known stars shifted out of place. I joined the infantry because I knew even then that most of what I've just said is total BS or and it won't really answer a thing. Hmm. And it's gorgeous. And it's so much like a poet. They never seem to answer a question, you know? <laughs> right. So much like a poet. Patrick, I want to jump, have you jump in here from a literary analysis standpoint. This book, partially why it is so special yeah. and has received such an audience, is because of that poetry that is woven out very, I don't know, you know, the Iliad or whatever. I mean, like these, the history of the, con- the intersection between poetry and narrative nonfiction. Yeah. Hmm. He crushes that as a oh, writer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you can tell Brian trained as a poet first and um, sort of moved into prose. Um, I think some of the best prose writers um, have studied um, poetry very, very carefully. 
Um, I've certainly uh, found a great deal of nourishment from poetry, intellectual nourishment, and I think it's made me a better prose writer. But um, beyond that, there's a section in um, My Life as a Foreign Country called The The Soldiers Enter the House, and that's based off of uh, a particular poem, and Brian takes that poem and kind of uh, makes it his own, and there's that sense of repetition. And that section of the book is about how you had to kick in doors and and, yeah. and, and search for, you know, illegal mm. paraphernalia. So, I mean, poetry is, is very much a part of this collection, although you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that the DNA of poetry is, is, yeah. in, is in this book. There's a, a writer, Rick Moody, who wrote a, a short story called Boys, I believe. And I remember him, him read that. And that, that piece became a sort of, it's, it has a velocity to the language that I was intrigued by. And then it starts, um, the boys into the house, the boys into the house. And so I just pick up from where he started, and I say, the soldiers into the house, the soldiers into the house. And that was a doorway that helped me find my way into, um, when it, mostly in Mosul, in the northern part of Iraq, we did, uh, I don't even know how many raids we did. Some nights we do multiple raids, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of people were sort of, we detained a lot of people and put them into the Iraqi judicial system. And because I, they knew me as a professor in the, the, my, uh, comp, uh, my platoon, um, that I'd often be asked to write the depositions. So I, I know that my words were then translated into Arabic and would become part of the court case for these folks. And to this day, I have to wonder who did I wrongly pin? You know, uh, who did I? I wasn't, a, I'm not a detective, I'm not a trained police officer. And um, so, but if we have more of a bird's eye view, I think. Um, the, the things we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, I suppose, um, the thing, the war that we carry home with us, what do we do with it? Uh, the, right now what I see, um, what I'm seeing is sort of conversation is a lot of people starting to re-argue why these wars started, uh, especially in Iraq. And I think it's maybe they're just the wrong question for me. The question I've been asking is I've been driving across country much of last fall and into the spring. Um, I've been going to small towns over much of the south and southwest and I've been asking people at cafes and, and truck stops and, and gas stations or whatever it might be, um, what did we learn? And nobody seems to know. When I ask people like with Afghanistan, the longest wars in American history, in Iraq, what did we learn from that experience? What, as a nation, what did we learn? And I just repeat it, but n- nobody seems to know. And I, I think that's a real lesson that a, that a nation could wage war for all that time, lose so much. Uh, and their own people uh, have to carry a lot home with them and share it with the people they love back here. Um, and yet, maybe we don't really know what that was even about. You said in a New York Times piece when you went back to Iraq mm-hmm. in 2010, I believe it was, yeah. that the job of listening to these people mm-hmm. was going to be incredibly important in the future. Mm-hmm. Say more about that, and then also what you just said about listening to if we want to know those answers, if we want to know what we learned, mm. we have to listen to the people who were there, Iraqi people. Yeah. We have to listen to our own veterans who are not always asked. I mean, has anyone come to you and said, we want to talk to you about what you learned? <laughs> In any <laughs> no kind asked, of structured no. way, right? No, not yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, I think uh, I've actually tried to stay out of the conversation the last yeah. few years because uh, I was encouraged by, by a friend to do this, and, and I agreed that um, I've had a lot of time at the microphone. And, and so for several years, I've tried to not be a part of this conversation in a larger way and allow space for other veterans to speak. Um, it's their time. We can learn from them. 
Um, and, but also I was hoping that Iraqi voices and Afghan voices would enter into the picture. In the meantime, I've been, what I've been trying to learn is to continue to create bridges with writers and intellectuals in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, for example, I was part of a book called The Four Faces of Loss. I, I wrote that, co-wrote that with uh, Shole Wolpe, who's an Iranian-American writer in Los Angeles. Uh, Sadek Mohammed is a poet in Baghdad. And um, Mujib Merdad, uh, a poet in, in Kabul. And the book came out just before the fall of Kabul, and, or it was about to, and we pulled it and held it because we were worried about his safety. Because as an American you know, veteran, having collaborated with an, uh, an Afghan poet, I was worried about his life and his family, but he was also the editor of the main newspaper in Kabul. Thankfully, Chris Merrill out of, out of Iowa was able to help him with the State Department to get him and his family out. And they're now actually in Florida, so I'm about to go meet him and, and in person. But we've, we collaborated on a book, and so I guess that's part of my project is to continue. Before, when I was in Iraq, I was writing these poems in my notebooks, and I was reading Iraqi poetry, and I was conceptually in my head in conversation with the voices of old, and some mm -hmm. contemporary poets, but now I'm trying to have a living conversation with people, because if our countries don't, it doesn't seem like our countries have learned from each other what was this all about exactly, but as human beings, maybe we can start a whole different conversation. Maybe fall in love with each other. If we fall in love with each other, it's so much harder to, to go to war. Mm. You, know? you say in the book, maybe it isn't that it's so difficult coming home, but that home isn't a big enough space for all that I must bring to it. America, vast and laid out from one ocean to another, is not a large enough space to contain the war each soldier brings home. And even if it could, it doesn't want to. Hmm. Do we want to fall in love with each other? I, I, hmm. in the I way, hope so. In the way that you lay out, do we want to invite that kind of love? I, I would, I would, I hope for that, but I'm not seeing it. Yeah. And, um, but, but that's why I keep talking too. And trying to help other conversations along these lines because it's still possible. Um, it's one of the things is that uh, I think um, you know there's a lot of conversations about thanking soldiers for their service, and um, mm -hmm. I, I like to try to remind those those who haven't served, um, like you know they're part of the war too. Like in, in history, no major army has ever gone out into the field where the people back home didn't have to give up some chickens. You know, like there's these wars, we're not divorced from them. But if we shake a soldier's hand or a veteran's hand and say, thank you for service, it can kind of divorce ourselves from the wars that we're a part of and put the burden of it on those who participated in it yeah. and re not recognize that it takes a nation to go to war. And so it is a conversation we all have to have. Brian Turner and Patrick Hicks, both at the South Dakota Festival of Books this weekend. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. On this day in 1961, the South Dakota School for the Blind begins classes at its new campus in Aberdeen. The school had operated since 1900 in the town of Gary, South Dakota, but the legislature authorized a new facility and the move to Aberdeen. 
Today, the school is known as the South Dakota School for the Visually Handicapped, and they documented their history, noting that the residents had lobbied to be the location for a, quote, blind asylum, and even offered their former courthouse building for use. The Board of Charities and Corrections chose the community, but decided to build a new facility that opened Monday, March 1, 1900. Stewardship of the School for the Blind moved to the South Dakota Board of Regents in 1945. The legislature voted to move the school, and a new facility opened in Aberdeen in 1961. Ten years later, there was a name change to the South Dakota School for the Visually Handicapped. Now, throughout the years, more and more visually handicapped students have been integrated into traditional public schools, and the facility has been modernized in Aberdeen in partnership with Northern State University. They continue their services with the motto, Visions of a Brighter Tomorrow Through Education. But after 60 years of operations in Gary, South Dakota, the South Dakota School for the Blind transitioned to new facilities in Aberdeen, on this day in 1961. Production assistance for this day in South Dakota history comes from Brad Tennant at Dakota Wesleyan University. More in the moment is up next on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. What can happen at a local hardware store? A lot, apparently. Ten Square Blocks is a new book from Scurf P. Press. Its author is SDSU's distinguished professor, W. Carter Johnson. It offers ten insider stories from a Sioux Falls hardware store. Dr. Johnson tells those stories at the South Dakota Festival of Books this weekend in Deadwood. Here is my conversation with him when the book released. This is a book about a hardware store, your family hardware store, but it begins in hospice as um, some brothers and sisters are sitting around telling stories. Tell me a little bit about your idea for this book and the universality of siblings saying, do you remember when? Well, they all were uh, members of the staff <laughs> at, uh, at Johnson Hardware, whether they wanted to be or not. So four of us uh, were there for as long as 20 years, and we experienced a lot in those 20 years. And a lot of it was uh, hilarious, and a lot of it was serious, and some of it was dangerous. Uh, but those stories became bedtime stories. I mean, when we got older and had kids, we would tell the Johnson Hardware stories to the kids, and they loved those stories. And so when my dad was uh, in his deathbed, and we were around him, and it's a, it's a difficult time, of course, and what do you, what do you say? He was uh, incoherent. Hmm. And we started to talk about the old days, and we started talking about the stories. And so one story after another after another, and we tried to, to top each other, and it, it one point, there were some funny ones, and the nurse came in and said, uh, you guys better be quiet. You're making too much noise. <laughs> so uh, these stories were the basis for the book. This weird Johnson family in their grief is uh, turning up the volume on laughter, which sounds like a pretty good thing to do. Tell us about Johnson Hardware, because for some people, th I mean, there aren't hardware stores like this anymore. 
No, the independent hardware stores are mostly all gone. Um, but back in the day, everyone went to the hardware store. No matter who you were, you had to buy light bulbs or faucet washers or something. So we met just about everybody. But the store started uh, in the 1920s by my grandparents. And then they uh, they uh, continued to, to open the store until the 1930s when my grandfather was killed and my grandmother ran uh, the the uh, hardware store, and she was there's a, a bit in the book about uh, what the editor uh, of the uh, Argus Leader said about a woman running a hardware store. Hmm. Uh, but then uh, after World War II, my dad came back uh, from military in, in Germany and England and took over the store. And so then it, it uh, was in business uh, and the next 10 to 20 years were probably the best business it had up until 1970 when he decided to go full-time into the, the military again. Yeah. I feel like we should make time for a fish story. Tell us about the catfish. It's an amazing story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I, if you told somebody that uh, a, a teenager caught a 87-pound catfish in a little pond at uh, Westington Springs, they'd say, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so, so, but it is true, and the uh, the the kid was on the on the uh, uh, the bank fighting this big fish, and the whole town came down to see what was going on. And the fish would pull the line out, and he'd pull it back. And I don't know how many hours it took, but they finally got it uh, uh, on shore, 87 pound catfish, and uh, we had a a, a store contest back in that day. It was very popular, and so they loaded that catfish up in the car, maybe in the truck, and <laughs> uh, took it to Johnson Hardware, and we waited, entered it, entered it, and of course it was the biggest fish of the year, and they won, their family won a trip to northern Minnesota to a real lake uh, <laughs> to go fishing. And this is an opportunity missed in some ways, because everybody wants to see the fish, and um, should really charge admission, but that <laughs> tells us a little bit about the lines for people who wanted to see the fish. It was, uh, yeah, there's a picture in the book that shows how many people had lined up on the front of the store to, to walk through the store. We had put the fish in a in a uh, open freezer uh, with the door up, and uh, they would all walk by, and they would, I don't know how, 5,000 maybe uh, people walked by to see that fish, and they all sort of dressed up and like they were going to church. And some people said, well, you know, it does look a little bit like a, 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 a session of going through and looking at the dead person <laughs> in, the, in, in the casket. Paying and their so respects. I said, well, it, it does look <laughs> like that, giving their respects and so on. So it was uh, uh, quite, an, quite an event, and the fish uh, attracted a lot of... And, and if you re remember the book, uh, my dad always kicked himself that he didn't forecast that himself mm -hmm. and that he didn't prepare his uh, so objects for sale that people when they walked through they saw something they couldn't resist and that he could have actually made some money on the <laughs> fish but it turned out that he, he didn't and he said well the next time somebody brings in an 87 pound fish I'm going to be ready <laughs> Tell me what um, <laughs> growing up in the hardware store meant for you as a college professor in your education like what are some of the lessons that you took away from that we just have like a minute left so Maybe one key takeaway from your time as an adolescent that you still carry today. I, I think um, 
Uh, troubleshooting is number one. People mm -hmm. came in with something that was broken, their motor wouldn't run, their fish's, fish line is, or fishing reel is broken. And so we had to figure out how to fix it for them. And so what do scientists do? Well, yeah. they pose hypotheses and then they test them. And that's what we did. We said, if your engine doesn't work, is it, have you, do you have gas? Uh, do you have electricity? Uh, is, the, is the gas valve open? Uh, how do we how do we uh, figure out your, solve your problem? And so, it, the uh, that experience I think dovetails perfectly into my science career. Yeah, um, we'll have to have you back on to talk about your wonderful South Dakota ecology book. But this book we've been talking about today is called Ten Square Blocks by W. Carter Johnson. It's out now from Scurf P Press. Dr. Johnson, uh, professor emeritus of ecology at South Dakota State University and uh, a great storyteller in this book as well. Thank you so much for being here. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for having me. W. Carter Johnson presents at the South Dakota Festival of Books in Deadwood this weekend. I'll be there too in the moment broadcast live from the festival on Friday. We're at the Lodge in Deadwood. We've got lots going on that weekend. I'll tell you more about Badger Clark and Tatanka and the American Buffalo later this week. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, thank you for listening.